0: Welcome to the Mindful Runner podcast, a show about running and racing, trail and ultra in South Africa. Along the way, we'll be talking training, gear, nutrition and mindfulness, all in the context of the South African racing scene. I'm your host, Fred Richardson, founder and head coach at Mindful Runner. Stay tuned as I do my best to give you all the information and none of the waffle. I'm here with Spurge Flemington, the organiser of Alter Trail Darkensburg, and we're going to have a a chat with Spurge and find out more about the event. Spurge, Alter Trail Darkensburg, how did the whole event come about? Give us some of the history.
1: Sure, Fred. Um, So I I already had an event up here in the called the Giants Cup Trail Run, um, which has been going since about 2013 or so. And that's, that was a two-day run um, that covered the entire Giants' Cup hiking trail, which is 62Ks. Um, and we'd been running with that for a couple of years. And the natural progression with the Giants' Cup was to look at potentially doing it as a one-day ultra um, to add that to, to the whole basket. Um, so I was already looking at that, and we, we did have um, the first sort of test run of that, um, as the Giants Cup Uncut event in, I think it was about 2015 or so, and that was, you know, obviously a very small race, but it was it was well received, and there was obviously a lot of potential there. And then at the same time, obviously around the country, um, a lot of a lot of events were starting to look at the longer distances. Uh, obviously, UTCT was just getting going, um, and they had their 100K and. Yeah, it seemed, just seemed like a natural progression to take um, the Giants Cup trail run, which still exists in its original format. It really got momentum when we were having the Giants Cup, Stu McConaughey from UTCT was up for the run, and another friend of mine, Lance, when we were just talking about taking it to the ultra level, and um, obviously, we started talking about Ultra Trail Drakensberg as a potential name, and it just had a, an immediate ring to it. So, settling on the name and that sort of thing was pretty much the easiest side of it. And then obviously I had Stu to chat to about doing the, the formalities with regards to actually registering it as an official uh, ultra trail event with UTMB and all that sort of thing. Once I'd done that, so we got the UTMB formalities sorted out. And then obviously it was a case of looking seriously at, at trying to find a 100 kilometre course. Um, you know, obviously we already had the 62 and and the 30, um, you know, on the Giants Cup Trail available to us. So, you know, I then just needed to, to find essentially another 40Ks to run before we got onto the Giants Cup Trail and, and had that 60Ks. We're relatively limited with what we can do here. Um, you know, people often say to me, or, you know, look at all the trails in the Berg and we can run wherever we want. But we actually can't. Um, there are areas up here because of the World Heritage Site that they call pristine wilderness, and we are not allowed to have any events whatsoever in, in those areas. So a lot of the trails that you know many people think are available to us are actually not available to us. Um, so I had to find um, you know forty K's of, of really high quality trail and, and sort of notable features that fell outside that pristine area. Um, so that was, that was sort of the primary challenge, because if it wasn't for that, you know, there's, I mean, there's just hundreds of kilometres of trails we, that we could have tapped into potentially. Um, adjacent to the Sani Pass road, or well, the Sarni Pass um, road that goes up to the top of the Sani Pass, there's a buffer zone on either side of that road. And within that buffer zone, um, there are trails. And I these trails, I was able to look at these trails and then link them back down into the Giant's Cup Trail, which obviously falls outside um, the wilderness area. And while I was looking at that, I, I also thought, well, obviously, we've got the Sani Pass as well, staring us right in the face. And it's pretty, yes, it's not a trail, but it is a pretty iconic part of, of the Drakensberg and of South African sort of um, folklore. And obviously, it's a beast of a climb as well, you know from the SA border post to the top, it's it's pretty much a vertical K in 8 kilometres. So, taking that into account, I thought it's a good place to start a race simply because, you know, it's a pretty, it, it's a household name. Um, it's a really tough climb, so that's a good challenge for runners, and then also it's a good opportunity to, to blow the field apart um, before we got into the trailhead. You know, I looked obviously more in depth, uh, found some found some trails that I could link into that. And, yeah, we had a 100K course. Um, and once we had the 100K course, then we had an event and we could launch UTD. And, yeah, we went with in the first year, um, you know, the 100K and the 62K uh, and the 32K. Um, the 32K we decided to turn into a sun, what we call the sundowner run. Which was an afternoon run um, to give the majority of the runners a a taste of of night running. So we try to mix it up with that. But yeah, to get back to your original question, that was sort of how we got to the first UTD event.
0: Wow. Yeah. Um, That wilderness area actually, it's it's there for a good reason, right? Um, So not putting trails through it is a good idea i know that um it's parks actually limit the trails that go through there they don't want to see any sign of man being in those wilderness areas so you're lucky just to hike in those areas so you've now got your 32 you've got the 62 you've got 100k and now the big challenge is where to put 100 miles so you just decide to include another country. And that adds a whole lot more complexity to the event from your point of view, doesn't it?
1: It sure does. Um, but it was an absolutely logical and uh, inevitable step. Um, you know, obviously the first year getting the 100K launched was the focus. Uh, but very much from from the beginning, in the back of my mind, I was thinking 100 but just to touch back on that wilderness thing again, ironically, to f- to try and then find another 60 or 70 Ks um, that wasn't in the wilderness was really going to, to sort of test me. Um, and, and I don't think it actually would have been possible to do it. And we would have then probably had to had to look for, you know, look for mileage elsewhere. And I very much didn't want to just tack on extra mileage for the sake of it, uh, to, to create, um, you know, the hundred mile. And obviously, you know, the real prize was to look on top of the Berg and into Lesotho. I mean, for me, that was, if we could get into Lesotho, um, and link back down into South Africa, uh, that was, that was first prize. So obviously a, a whole multitude of challenges in that regard, um, first of all, just, finding out if city if would even let us in to come and have an event. Um, and we had to obviously speak to a, a number of departments and, and ministries to get all that sorted. We had obviously immigration challenges. We're now running through border posts in the middle of the night, um, things like that. Uh, we had challenges from safety and security, just being able to deal with, the local elements up there and not be able to necessarily communicate with them or find avenues of, of or ways to communicate with them. So, we had to build up all those sort of relationships so that we could try and build on those and improve those relationships with all the stakeholders. Um, so, there was a lot of challenges in that regard. And then also, just once again, finding 70 kilometers of, of trail or close to it up in Lesotho um, that fitted in and was able to connect back down into South Africa um, and back down into the balance of the existing course um, of the 100K uh, and, and you know, finish at the same place and that sort of thing. We obviously didn't want to have an event within an event. We wanted to make sure that the 100 miler was very much part of the whole UTD experience. So we had to keep that in mind as well. And then obviously to try and make the course itself in Lesotho as appealing and as, as attractive as possible um, so also kept in mind looking looking out for for notable features or, or you know talking points or anything that would make make the event more unique so yeah it was a big sort of melting pot of trying to get all those things together yeah it took a lot of a lot of work and it came up against a lot of brick walls in many ways but ultimately we were able to to get that course off the ground and get that sort of 70 days that we needed and due to starting at the highest pub in Africa which was a bit of a, which was a good calling card, um, managing to include Tabana and Lignana, the highest points in Southern Africa below Kilimanjaro, as you know well, having sp- spent a number of cold nights on top of that. So I felt like we'd managed to get enough of the of the really good features. You know, we we can, after the start we were able to bring the guy the runners out to to the edge of the escarpment and run along uh, the edge of the escarpment and see the views down into South Africa. And then also at the same time, trying to keep it on trail as much as possible. We didn't want to just turn it into a bushwhacking sort of adventure race. We did very much want to make it as runnable as possible for those who were able to run in those conditions. Um, whether it was you know altitude or, or climbing or whatever but in terms of actual run that was always a big factor I, I, I still wanted the 100 miler to be very much a run um, so that that was something that was also quite challenging just you know we, we'd sort of find five or eight k's of, of really good trail and then it would just disappear completely and there'd be absolutely nothing for Two or three k's, and I'd have to try and find another trail, or sheep track, or uh, cattle track to link it into. Um, so it took a it, that that was probably one of the most challenging parts was was trying to find all those trails and areas, link them in, and keep it to about that 70k distance, and obviously take in, in the features that we that I've mentioned. But yeah, we, we eventually got there um, and over the last couple of years, we've built up a really good relationship with the stakeholders in the SUTU um, from, the, from the immigration crowd um, to the local mounted police and, and you know, local tourism and all that sort of thing. And yeah, it's, it's, it's always had its challenges and obviously with COVID and everything, that those challenges once again. Um, really reared their heads with you know, international border posts and COVID tests and all that sort of thing. But we managed to get that off the ground this year as well, which I was really, really pleased about. But it's always, yeah, having having the race across two countries is is always going to be logistically challenging. Um, but I think that's also what makes makes the UTV 100 miler uh, pretty special.
0: Yeah, it is certainly special. And that first 20, 30 k's, you've got that piece along the escarpment edge. Um, that is just dramatic. I, I don't think there's much more dramatic scenery than that in terms of running in the high berg. And then, yeah, as you say, onto to which is the highest point in Southern Africa, and it just collects all the wind from everywhere because there's no shelter up there. Um, and most of the guys hit that. At night, the chances of of encountering snow when you're up in Lesotho are very real. How does a runner prepare for that kind of environment?
1: It's definitely very real. I mean, we had snow there this year, as you recall. Um, luckily, it was a couple of days before, and it wasn't a very heavy fall. Literally, the, uh, the week after UTD this year, there was close to a meter of snow in, in Lesotho. Um, so obviously, that would have made, you know, you know, we've always got to have backup plans. That would have made UTD impossible, but. Just a light fall of snow and those kind of conditions like you talk about with regard to, to wind, the wind exposure up there on a bad day can be you know, unbelievable. So how does a runner prepare? First and foremost, um, religiously follow the compulsory kit list and then some. We're actually looking for next year. We've always had a single compulsory kit, kit list, um, but we're actually going to split the kit list for next year into a Lesothi section and then a a South African section. Um, And, you know, the 100-mile runners will be able to leave some of their stuff behind once they exit Lesotho because we really do feel that we can't emphasize how important it is to carry the right equipment um, and not just giving it a sort of cursory nod by saying, oh, it says jacket and I've got a jacket, but really the, the right weight of everything, the right equipment as as specified um in terms of uh you know whether it's water you know the degree of waterproof proofing or, or things like that are all absolutely vital um i think you know we've we've had some really tough weather up there over utd in the past four years but we've had we haven't had anything extreme yet um so that's always a big concern for me um and yeah we are looking at 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 advancing the requirements and also advancing the support in any way that we can to make sure that it's as, as safe as possible. But the ultimate responsibility, as you know, always comes down to the runner. Um, there really are no corners that, that, you know, can be cut with with regard to compulsory kits and safety up in the Sutu. It is an extreme environment and all you need to do is go hundred meters off course or something and you know, you could get into real trouble. So yeah, very much. Um, you know, it, it sounds sometimes it sounds slightly scaremongering, but uh, it really is worth um, going to every extreme with regard to to safety, compulsory kits, and and all the requirements.
0: Yeah, yes, having having been up on that checkpoint for what, three years now, um, I can attest to the fact that you absolutely cannot skimp on your gear. It is just crazy to do that. Um, i think we've had as cold as minus 15 and as you say that's not even in extreme conditions yet that is still relatively mild it's it's the wind chill that really makes things wild up there so skimping on gear just don't
1: yeah and i I think what a lot of guys do is they they pack for the good times Uh, and what i mean by that is you know as long as they're moving they think they're warm and, and everything's fine but. What you really need to do is, you know, sort of imagine a scenario where you're not moving and you're wet and you can't move and you're immobilized for a protracted period. And if your kits can withstand that, then I think you're in the right sort of, you know, frame of mind. Um, You don't want to only be, you know, sort of packing what uh, what keeps you warm while you're moving or running or, or, or in fairly good condition. You really need to think through that that broken ankle scenario where you know there's sleet or, or rain falling, sub-zero temperatures, and you need to be able to sit there for three or four hours until someone can come and fetch you. You're, you. That's the kind of level that your your equipment and your 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 kit needs to withstand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that you've got going, suppose, uh, an interesting thing is the, the rider that leads out the horse rider that leads out the lead runner. How did that come about?
1: I was quite nervous in the first year, you know, we obviously marked the course, um, and obviously compulsory GPS and all that sort of thing, but the problem with marking the course is because of the remoteness and the distances involved, I have to mark that course up to four days in advance, Um, and with the wind that you can get up there and lots of shepherds wandering around who love a piece of reflective uh, material, and then Flocks of sheep which love nibbling on different things tied onto bushes and things like that. I was pretty paranoid about Half the markers having disappeared and you know, I just wanted to Be absolutely sure that that The sort of lead runner had something to follow Um, Because I kind of felt if the lead runner had something to follow It would increase the safety of everyone behind them as well Um, So and I didn't want to use something, it just felt wrong to use something intrusive like a motorbike or something like that. Um, it just kind of jarred against the whole the landscape up there and also the just the solitude and the quietness and everything else. I, I, you know, the thought of a, of a two-stroke engine blowing across there just, just didn't feel right at all. So I was chatting uh, to some of the locals up there and often see the guys on horseback and I kind of suggested, well, what about if we have a horseback, you know, go on horseback, and we can split it into into uh, into three legs. Um, you know, the first leg from the start to Signy Stone Lodge, and then have another rider take over from there to Black Mountain, and then a third rider take over from there to to Tabana and back to the finish, um, which is the longest leg, but would also be the slowest leg. So I felt it was it was definitely doable. Um, and then I also chatted to some some friends of mine down here who who are into um, that endurance horse riding sports, um, which is, you know, involves, you know, riding distances of up to 100 Ks and whatnot. And I just asked them from a, you know, from, from the horse's point of view, if this was, you know, sort of a reasonable request. Um, And they said very much so that those Lesotho ponies are just absolutely the best, you know, sort of animals for those kind of conditions. And they could quite easily handle a sort of, 30 K leg. So once we kind of established all that, um, yeah, we just set it up. And, uh, I didn't really think of it as, to me, it was just very much a practical thing. It, it, it wasn't anything really more than that. And it's only over the last couple of years that we've realized what a sort of, um, iconic symbol of, of the, of the hundred, of the Lesuti leg of the hundred mile it's, it's become. Um, I know, uh, uh, this year, when Ryan was leading, um, he just said it was such a uh, special experience being able to run uh, with that horse, you know, through through 70 Ks of Lesutia, of you know, in day, in day and night conditions. And I think, you know, the impact that it had on him really resonated with me. And I realized that we've actually got something pretty special there. So, yeah, that's how the whole, the whole lead out horse came about.
0: Yeah, it is. It's fascinating watching them from the from the top of Tubinglina as they come towards you, both rider and runner. Oh, amazing!
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a view I've never had. So yeah, it, it, I'd love to see that one day.
0: Yeah, we've got to get a decent camera up there. <laughs> I keep yes, on threatening are. to take a yeah, decent. It's on the camera list.
1: We're just going to <laughs> to carry it.
0: Exactly. Um, the hundred milers, unlike um, so many other hundred miles, you get a belt buckle when you finish. You guys do a cowbell. Why the cowbell?
1: Coming back to all those sort of weeks and months I spent wandering around up there trying to establish the course uh, or the seventy k's that we needed. Um, as you know, you know there's a few sort of sounds that are, are symbolic of the Suti. One of them is the sound of the wind in your ears, <laughs> and uh, another one of them is the sound of the sheep bells or the uh, you know the, the ringing of the bells of, from the sheep flocks um, it's just amazing how that sound carries, and you know, you you can be on the top of one of of, of sort of one uh, hillside or something, and right on the other side, three four k's away, can be a flock of sheep, and if the wind's right, you can hear that sort of that that tinkling sound um, of the sheep bells. We were looking for something slightly different to give to the runners. Um, I'm certainly not against the belt buckle at all and it's, it was very strongly in my mind um so this wasn't a sort of uh, something against that but it just seemed appropriate and it seemed slightly different and yeah we just said let's go for it and see how how the runners respond to it and um once again luckily they seem to have really enjoyed it and and really responded well to it and and it's actually become quite a big part of the award ceremony now, where um, all the all the finishers, you know, who've who've got their 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 cowbells, come together, and and we have that ringing of the bells um, for all the for all the finishers in the hundred mile. So it's it's kind of grown into that, and it's now become a an integral part of of the hundred mile. I,
0: I hadn't actually thought about that. <laughs> the sound is evocative of being up on the highbo. You you're always hearing the bells somewhere. That sheep bells going off, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 especially when you're know, in sections where there's no one around and you're on your own and um yeah, it's it's just to me such an iconic sound. But one of the one of the slight drawbacks is that when we're up there wrecking in that in sort of January, February, March, um all the sheep flocks are up there because the grass is still green and you know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of shepherds around and there's a lot of sheep around and, and that that sound is is ubiquitous wherever you go. Um, every valley, you come around the corner and there's a, there's a flock of sheep and some of them have got bells on. The, 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 the downside is that by the end of April, when we have UTD, a lot of those flocks have gone. So you still hear that sound, but it's not as uh, pervasive as, as you know, sort of early in the year. So there is a little bit of a downside there, but you still hear it um, during UTD. So I'm, I'm hoping the rainers make the connection.
0: One of the things that I've really enjoyed about the event um, is, as it's grown, so, well, this last year, you had all the events finishing um, at one venue, and the finish line feels, I mean, just absolutely amazing, and you're timing the starts of the events so that you have the bulk of the finishes coming through, right? So 32s are finishing with hundreds, are finishing with the 62s. It's absolutely brilliant.
1: For the first couple of years, all, all the courses were point to and which means that they, they all started where they all had different start places, but they all finished together, but at Bushman's Neck Hotel. And this was logistically very challenging for, for us as organisers, um, but also very challenging for supporters and athletes trying to plan, um, you know, where they're going to stay the night before, where they're going to stay the night after. For 2020, when um, new- you we'd already made the call to change the course um, of all the events uh, so that we could have everybody finishing back at the Pass Hotel where some of the events started um, and then also able to make the hotel itself a race hub, uh, which we'd never been able to do before because we were constantly moving. We were always setting up a start, starting the runners and then then breaking the start down and and chasing the runners to the next point. Um, Whereas now... With the change in the course uh, of all the events, we're now able to have a sort of fixed base to a large degree. Uh, we still have some, obviously, some different starts starts areas, but it's a lot more cohesive and coherent. And and that sort of, um, as you described, that that finish line vibe and that sense of a race village, and everything else that goes with it, and also the fact that Sonny Pass Hotel has the capacity and has you know has has really done a marvelous upgrade over the past. Three or four years to the whole facility. It was just a no-brainer to try and turn that into the race hub, and also bring bring more community into it, bring more supporters, family, all that sort of thing. Because prior to that, a lot of UTD was extremely remote, um, which was fine for the runners, but it was it was very tough to build any kind of just vibe and support and everything else that I think makes a big part of a lot of the European races that we that we see so and certainly like races like for instance UTCT which have obviously the city right there and that sort of thing um we wanted to in a small way try and bring that into the race so that the ability to to be for for all spectators and supporters and family and everyone else to be part of it was was a lot easier and then obviously the finish line itself is just a really cool place where you know, we can set up and be there from you know from the first finishes and the 100 miler early on Saturday morning, right through to the last finishes and the 100 miler on Sunday morning, uh, with everyone else finishing in between. So yeah, I, I'm glad to to hear that you think it, it worked out well because that was what we were hoping, yeah, and it it seemed to go pretty well this year.
0: The surroundings, I mean, having the backdrop of Giant's Cup behind you and just being in the middle of the Drakensberg because yeah. that hotel really feels like you're in the middle of the Berg. That's what it feels like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of what we were hoping it would feel is that exactly that combination of, of having all the facilities on hand, you not, you know, not just a, an open field with a marquee. We've got really great facilities there, but you you are at the base of Signy Pass. You are right at the edge of, of the Giants Cup Trail um, and you are looking straight into the mountains. So you still have that sense of exactly you know, either where you're going or where you've come from.
0: And as a spectator, you can sit there and order your GNT and and sit on the lawn and watch runners come in. It's spectacular.
1: Absolutely. You know, and we book out the whole hotel as well. So that's that's a minimum of sort of 200 runners that we know will be in the hotel uh, and right on the finish line. So it's a really great captive audience. You know, we're not having a situation where everybody finishes, gets into a car and has to drive two hours to get to the accommodation and then we never see them again. You know, we've got a really cool situation in that regard where a runner can cross the finish line, um, you know, have a beer or whatever, go up to their room, have a shower, have a sleep if they want to, and then come back down and support their friends who's still coming in either behind them in, in the same distance or friends in one of the other races who, who, who might be finishing at a different time. So, we, yeah, that, that's a big element that we really wanted to build on. And I think it worked quite nicely um, in this first year now. And you know, we're looking at building on that further in the future. Um, you know, We've obviously got some thoughts about putting in extra facilities above and beyond the hotel's capacity to try and give as many people as possible opportunity to stay close to the race village.
0: The event, obviously, you've got the Jarkinsburg, you've got Lesotho. I mean, in, in terms of South African ultras, what really sets UTD apart from the others? They're all terrific events, but you have a unique flavor, right?
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, you know, I think there's so many great events in South Africa and they've each got their own flavor. Um, uh, I think f- for us, f- the real cornerstone of of every of everything is the Drakensberg. You know, that's a name that's, that's known around the world. Uh, so I think... For us, for us to have that as our, our playground and our backyard really is is key. Um, the fact that it's a World Heritage site as well is also very important. I think it's very pristine up there. A lot of the trails are very pristine. Uh, well, the areas through which the trails go are very pristine. Then we also obviously have the Lesotho elements, and I think throwing in the Lesotho elements um, for the hundred mile is 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 absolutely vital. If, I think if we just put on another 60 or 70 k's to the 100 k down here in South Africa, it still would have been good, but it wouldn't have had that extra elements. So I think the 100 milers got that that edgy feel to it. That I mean, every time I go up to Lesotho, there's always a, one or two butterflies in my stomach. It's that kind of place, you know. So I think that's no matter how many times you go up, up there, you always get that feeling of you know, it's, it's a little bit like the Wild West. Um, so I think that's that's that brings a nice element to the hundred miler, um, yeah. And then we've we've obviously got the altitude. Uh, you know, no one else. Um, we're just fortunate that we are the highest place. So we we just by by virtue of, of you know that good good fortune, we have the altitude factor, which which brings its own challenges and its own appeals as well. People like to be challenged with with those sorts of things. Um, and then we've got quite a few iconic features as part of the course, you know, whether it's whether it's the Sani Pass or Tabano Finiana or Lesotho itself or the Drakensberg um, or the whole Giants Cup trail, which really is one of the, you know, the the hidden gems of of hiking trails in this country. Uh, you, you know, I think the 62K runners really have, it, it's, it's definitely our most popular event. Um, just looking at entries at the moment, it's already way ahead of, of all the others. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, It's such a beautiful trail. And it's also, I think people like to run something that exists in its entirety for a reason. And like the Giant's Cup Trail is a five day formal um, hiking trail, just like the Otter. And I think to come and run that all in one go gives people a sense of achievement and um, it's not just a random let's find ourselves 62k somewhere and, and and give people an ultra it's actually got a it's got a reason it's got a point to it and i think that that appeals to people as well makes it feel more like a journey i think when you you know you're doing the entire five day Giant cup hiking trail in in one go so i think those are a lot of elements that um that, that help to make you know utd what it is uh, and then also, as we just touched upon on, on the previous question, we've also got that facility um, at the finish line, that, that Sony Pass Hotel, which brings a sort of uh, an urban or more sort of uh, city facilities feel to the finish line, but it doesn't take anything away from, from the, the course and the race and the environment around it. Um, so it's kind of the best of both in that regard. So, yeah, I think those are a lot of elements that help to to just give UTD its own its own flavour.
0: In terms of entries, as you said, 62 is really starting to sell. Do you find that the, the 32 sells out first, and then 62 kind of going up in distance?
1: No, funnily enough. Um, so what, what I've done this year is I've I've trimmed the availability slightly on on the 21 and the 32, and made more entries available in the 62. Um, because our, our our entry limits are imposed by by Isnverlo, um, obviously because of the place you know the places which we run. Um, so I've got a total number of runners that I can currently accept and but I'm allowed to juggle numbers within the within the different events. obviously the the primary focus is the 100 mile and the 100k that will always be our primary focus in terms of entries um, but we're also realistic as to exactly how many people we can get at the moment um, from the South African pool um, because the international pool is obviously still very limited at the moment. The 62 tends to get uh, the fastest entries and tends to sell out first, funnily enough. And then the 32, the 21 sells out, well it sold out you know, this last year, but it was one of the last to sell out. I think it's just because people probably plan more further ahead for a more hardcore event. Um, and I think you know something like the 21, even though it's it's a properly tough little you know mountain run, is something that people can kind of make a call on you know six weeks before. So I think a lot of people do do that. Um, although I actually quickly went on and had a look at the entries um, before this before this call just to see exactly where we were, and I see that the 21 is, is sort of two thirds sold out already. So. It is going pretty well um, pretty quickly this year because, I mean, we've only been open for entries, what, I think, about six weeks or so. So that's that's great. Um, and then the 100-mile the and the 100K, we kind of get that initial surge, which, I, you know, I think people, you know, want to draw a line in, their, in the sand and make sure that they're committed and <laughs> that they can get training. You know, yeah, as you know, we, we need to scare ourselves to motivate ourselves. So uh, I think a lot of people use that tactic, um, and then I think other people kind of hang in there and, and, and wait, not as late as possible, but they wait relatively late, just in case they have injuries or something like that, or life changes. So it's obviously a more expensive race to enter. So possibly they don't want to risk that money too early, too early on. Although obviously we have a very, you know, very generous refund policy in that regard, so it's not really risk. So I think currently we're sitting overall. Um, at about forty-five percent uh, sold out across all, you know, across the board as a as a as a single figure. Um, obviously, I think that the sixty-two has got the most entries at the moment, but it's also got more entries available so uh, than the other event. So, percentage-wise, there's still quite a few entries available in the sixty-two.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, a question that has just like popped into my head right now. What is the I mean, you've got an enormous team, right? Between your medics, your safety guys, the logistics team, and there's there's a lot of planning that goes around that. It's so you're not running all your logistics, right? You've got minions doing the work.
1: <laughs> yeah, Fred, I wish. Um, <laughs> no, there, there there are a handful, a handful's probably even generous. Um, there's one or two people who are involved uh, sort of year round, um, but most of everything that we put together happens, you know, in, in the sort of six weeks before the event, um, and that is one of the one of what I do find probably the most challenging side of, of the event is is getting together. Um, experienced volunteers able to give up the time and and energy to come and be involved Um, and then obviously there's you know capacity to to remunerate you know team leaders and things like that is not unlimited so it's only in the last couple of years that we've been even be able to consider you know sort of employing anybody or anything like that. so that's definitely something we're trying to grow, um, but it kind of grows with the events. You can't can't put you know the cart in front of the horse too much there. I would love to be able to lighten the load slightly, but that's definitely the plan. You know, so we we will
0: we will get there. So it's still a labour of love at this stage. But yeah,
1: it does require it does require quite a big team. And yeah, one of the big challenges, obviously, we you know living where we do, um, we aren't in a big city. Or near a big city where there's a big pool of potential volunteers who are happy to just pop out on the day or pop out for the weekend. Um, you know, we've got the small village of Anderberg and that's about it. Um, so we've got to rely on people traveling relatively vast distances to come and be involved. So, I mean, all those, and we and we still do, you know, we get probably 50 or 60 volunteers who, who travel from around the country to come and be involved. And, uh, you know, we literally couldn't do it without those guys and girls. So, we are dependent on them and very grateful to them. But yeah, it would be nice to have a, you know, several large teams of minions permanently working in the background, but that's not, not necessarily the case.
0: Yeah, it's all about passion at this stage, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so um, we touched earlier on the challenges you faced having to work around the wilderness areas. And the fact that if you were able to use those wilderness areas, there's lots of trail in there and they're spectacular areas, but there's very good reason for not being able to use those for commercial events, right?
1: Absolutely, Fred, I mean, I'm a huge supporter of these these zones um, and the fact that they are there and sort of cramp our style and limit the possibilities can be slightly frustrating. But to me, it's it's an, it's an essential part of preserving what we have because once you start compromising on those sort of areas, you just have a slow but creeping kind of degradation of what you have. Um, and I think ultimately we'd lose the value of everything um, that we currently have at UTD if those areas were undermined in any way. Um, so as much as I look at some of those trails and go Oh, I wish we could go here or I wish we could come down that pass or go around there. You know, I just put that out of my mind because, as you say, they're there for a very good reason. But, I mean, those are truly pristine environments. Um, there's not many, you know, we've got a lot of parks around the country, but not many of them have the, the level of, of true pristineness that, that um, you know, the Drakensberg does simply because of its physical nature. You know, it, it's a barrier of spears. Um, as you know, and between that and, and down the farmlands, there really is, you know, a totally sort of undisturbed environment. And I think anything, any encroachment on that yeah, must, be, must be treated with, with a lot of caution. So I'm a big supporter of, of, of those areas and, and those rules that, that say it's actually limited to a hiking party of 12. That's where a lot of those trails that do go into those areas. That's the limit on what you're allowed to take into those areas. So I think that's a that's you know that, that's a rule I'm happy to live with. And I think as long as it's universally applied, which it is, um, I think it's I think it's a great thing, and I'm a big supporter of it.
0: An interview with Spurge Flemington, the man behind Alter Trail Drakensberg, a truly spectacular event set in the Molteni Drakensberg Mountains, and definitely one to put on your bucket list. For 2022 or beyond. We'll see you there. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Mindful Runner, check us out at mindfulrunner.co.za. On Instagram, you can find us at mindfulrunner. In the meantime, enjoy your running, happy trails, and don't forget to subscribe.